Why don't you turn to Ephesians 1 7, please? The message is entitled um, Grace Upon Grace. Paul the Apostle says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The most simple way to define grace is God's unmerited favor. To be dealt with mercy and kindness, which is not deserved. This is what the gospel is all about. This is what the very heart of uh, the word of God is. This is the very heart of the New Testament of the revelation of the grace of Jesus Christ. Calvary Chapel takes a strong stand on the grace of God and is one of the distinctives which finds its middle ground between extreme legalism and extreme liberalism in the church. And as we've been talking about these distinctives, and again, they come from Pastor Chuck Smith, who went home to be with the Lord um, three years ago on the third of this month. And, um, and these are various distinctives that we have always been known for. They're not exhaustive. You can continue to add others. But he just put these down, and they're just sort of landmarkings. And again, it's important that we be able to point these to the Scriptures. It's not that we believe these are a gospel, but that they come from the gospel. They come from the Scriptures, so therefore we're on solid ground, not the reverse. Um, legalism is only interested in finding out who's wrong and deals in um, cold facts, the letter of the law, um, kind of just interested in uh, hard, cold justice, totally ignoring mercy and kindness and restoration, um, as the scriptures teach very clear we are to do. Liberalism is the other band of only, on the other hand, is only uh, interested in not offending anyone. Uh, so there's no judgment at all, and everything is ignored or swept under the carpet, under the guise of God's love and grace, which is um, a gross misrepresentation of God and the scriptures. So you have those two extremes. The grace of God teaches that none of us are deserving of God's kindness, but it is imparted to us. But once that grace has been imparted, it's salvation. Then we have the ability and responsibility to live up to that grace. That is very clear. In the very same grace, when there is a failure, we are to attempt to restore the fallen brother or sister, but it is according to the scriptures that we'll see. By making a judgment as to what is right or wrong, by calling for repentance by confession and restitution, if possible, and by allowing time to run to see if the repentance was genuine or godly. All these things are necessary. All these things are ignored in the world, especially today with the politically correct language. 
today in the political correct language and it's crept into the church that no one is to judge. That's completely unbiblical. We've already shown that, but we'll probably hit it again. So let's look at the doctrine of grace from three perspectives. First, the believer is saved by grace as God judges his sins. Secondly, the believer has access to the throne of grace for self-judgment of his sins. And thirdly, the believer is disciplined through grace for the restoration from sin. That's what the Bible teaches about grace. So let's begin here with the believer is saved by grace as God judges his or her sins. The first time grace appears in the scripture is Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, by the way. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't find grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was sinless. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was a sinner. Grace is for sinners. Those who have fallen short, that means every person that ever is born into this world, all have come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Romans tells us very clearly, Romans 3.23. Noah did not find grace in God's eyes because he deserved it. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in order to continue the human race that had corrupted itself through the fall of Adam and Eve. Once they crossed that line, there could be no return. All they could be was be forgiven and redeemed. Once you and I do certain things, it can't be undone. It can't be erased. It's got to be forgiven so that we can be redeemed. The believer alone receives grace, not the unbeliever, unless they're calling on God for repentance. We all have received of the fullness of Jesus grace for grace, John 1.16 tells us. So as the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit convicts that person that they are sinners, that they are in sin, trespasses, dead, and that God wants to forgive them. And that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means of atonement. For the provisions of that but through grace. We also have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand, Paul says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God in Romans 5 2. Because we have been justified in Christ Jesus. You might define the word there in Romans 5, justified, justification, just as if you never had sin. Now, you and I know that we sin. We remember the times we sin. We remember all that we sin. We remember who we sin with and who we sin against. But grace tells us that when God forgives us, he casts our sins as far as he says the west. He buries them in the deepest ocean. He puts them behind his back. And therefore, he doesn't hold us accountable to our sins before Christ Jesus. They are put under his blood. That's called justification. Now, the believer is to move from spiritual infanthood to adulthood by the grace of God. You are saved by grace. Now, you're to continue to move in grace from infanthood 
to adulthood. Growth has to do with the increase of knowledge in proportion to our age in Christ. Just as you bring a baby home and you, you know, just recently born, two weeks, three weeks, uh, that baby is going to start growing, developing, and maturing. And you're looking for that growth and development in proportion to their arms, their feet, everything else, okay? If it doesn't happen in proportion within time, you know, something is wrong. You take him to the doctor. We're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 3.18 says. So as a person is born again in grace, he continues in grace, growing in the study of the word as they are reading, studying, uh, yielding to the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit and the word of God to transform them, to, feed, to put on the new man, reckon that the old man, to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, that I must decrease, but he must increase. Because now you've got a sin nature, you still have now a new nature. So those are opposed to one another, as we've seen. Development has to do with our balanced proportion of every area of our spiritual life due to the proper nourishment. So you want growth, but you also need development. In fact, um, Second Peter um, 1, 5 through 11 says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, he says, to make your call an election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John tells us the same thing in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, and the lust of flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. There must be growth. There must be development. You're to press forward. Again, decreasing and Jesus increasing. But again, the third level is that maturity. Maturity has to do with our quality of full age and the characteristic which allows individuals to respond and to resolve situations, even crisis, in such a way that life is enriched and further growth results and it should be present at every level of growth and development. When you look at your child and they are growing physically and you also mark the developmental of their proportions, you're also looking a certain maturity when he's one year old, when he's two years old, when he's five years old. How often um, maybe a teen is horsing around and, and you say, come on, act your age. And maybe he's 14, 15 and he's acting like a 10-year-old. That's what you're implying. So what you're doing is that you are... No. Hmm. You're telling them to be mature on every level. 
And so the maturity is very, very important. Paul told the Philippians, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained or arrived, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind, Philippians 3.16. So grace is defined as God's favor in uh, Genesis 6.8. God's forgiven mercy is, is said that to be in Romans 6 or 11.6. It's called gospel in John 1.17, gifts in 1 Peter 4.10. It's all by grace, all of that. Eternal life is by grace, 1 Peter 1.13. Grace is the source of salvation, call of God, faith, justification, forgiveness, and consolation. It's all sourced in grace. Grace is sufficient to cleanse us from all sins of our past and to make us new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says the following, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So grace stands alone for salvation, and nothing can be added to grace. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 is a great text. It says, for in him, meaning Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and power. The sum total of deity, Jesus Christ. Nothing can be added to grace. You're saved by grace. You are not saved because you are better than somebody else. You're not saved because you've sinned less or more than somebody else. You're just saved by grace. Everybody's in the same boat. Grace is the source of all that we are in Christ, as Paul declares that, uh, um, that it's of God completely and never, ever of ourselves. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than you all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul understood what grace was. He preached grace. This is what the New Testament is all about. So Calvary Chapel believes that the believer is saved by grace alone as God judges his or her sins. At that point of repentance. Very important. But secondly, the believer has access to the throne of grace for self-judgment of sins. Because... As we come to Christ and we're saved, we're not perfect. Every person will fall short till the day they die. But we don't live in sin the way we did before we come to Christ. There is a big distinction. Now, today, a lot of the emergent church is trying to prove that they can sin as much and sin the same as people in the world to show their compatibility. So Christians and, and, and pastors cuss from the pulpit and Pastors and elders have beer bashes. And if that's what's happening through leadership in the pulpit, what is going on in, in the pew? So it's, it's not the gospel of grace that is proclaimed in the New Testament. They're redefining the gospel of grace. They're redefining the Christian, redefining the church, redefining Christianity. It's called postmodern, the emergent church. So, we have access to grace for self-judgment now that we've come to Christ. 
the believer still has sin nature as a Christian, and as I've stated. We still have the old man residing in us, which um, has been reckoned dead at salvation and must be reckoned dead daily. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, and chapter 6, verse 11. Reckoning that old man dead. We're not to allow sin to reign on our mortal bodies, Romans 6, 12 says. And there in Romans 6, he says that your hands, your eyes, everything are, are weapons for either edification or destruction. We used to use our hands, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our bodies, everything for destruction, for sin. Now that we've come to Christ, they are weapons for edification. Our body becomes a temple of God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him. We're not to make provisions for our flesh to fulfill the desires of the flesh, the sinful passions, Romans 13, 14. So as a Christian now, you don't cater to your flesh, you don't live after your flesh, and you shouldn't be making provisions for your flesh. You should be giving a demonstration of being born, development, growth, and maturity. And that when you do stumble and fall, you have Jesus Christ the righteous to make intercession for you. We are exhorted to walk in the Spirit so as not to fulfill the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.16. The believer is to deal with any sin that enters his or her life in Christ Jesus. We are to judge ourselves in order that we not be judged by God. And disciplined as the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, It says that God disciplined some. He had struck them with sickness. Others, he had taken their life. Because they didn't discern the Lord's body of communion. And they were drinking, getting drunk. And then they were, which is a good text for the emergent church. <laughs> and, um, and others were abusing of just eating their own food, not sharing. And God says, I disciplined you. Because they wouldn't judge themselves. We are to judge ourselves. Now today you hear a lot that we as Christians shouldn't judge one another. And we shouldn't judge the world. Now, we don't judge the world that they're bad. We know they're bad. We used to be like that. Every person who's not born again is lost and dead in trespass and sins. Forget the sin. Forget the amount of sins. When you're dead, you're dead. When you walk into a morgue... And uh, you don't think that a person who's lying there is a stiff that died of a heart attack is any worse than someone who got hit by a car. They're both dead. Doesn't really matter, right? And so, um, we deal with any sin that enters into our life now because we're alive. And we realize that sin grieves God and sin grieves our fellowship with God. And so we ask God to forgive us for that. We acknowledge the sin and we ask Him to forgive us of our sin. And we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we're in fellowship. We are to acknowledge that sin, confess it, and in the name of Jesus Christ, if we are faithful to, just to, forgive us, to confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First uh, John. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9. We're to judge ourselves in order that we not be judged by God. In discipline. Again, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 
in First John 2, 1. It says that we have an advocate. It says, my little children, I write these things unto you that you do not practice sin. But if you stumble, if you fall short, you have an advocate for the defense, a lawyer, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is kind of a weird lawyer. Lawyers here on earth, um, weird in a good sense. Lawyers here on earth will take your case, whether you're guilty or not, and they're going to try to get you off as innocent. Jesus is a kind of different lawyer. You come to Jesus, you just did something, you said something that is sin. Then that, that makes me fall out of fellowship with God. That grieves him. God wants me to come in the name of Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my lie. Forgive me for you fill in the blank. I acknowledge your sin against you. Please cleanse me in Jesus' name. He forgives me. If I come to him and say, Lord, you know how it is, and you know that I wouldn't have done that if she wouldn't have made me so mad. Well, now you're trying to blame others and justify yourself. Or worse yet, you say, well, Lord, you know that, that little, it, it was really nothing. He doesn't hear me. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. Underline that. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, God's hands not short that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God, and he turns his back on you. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will God forgive yours. He's talking to Christians. You're out of fellowship. Good illustration is your cell phone. You ever dialed a number? You're going down the road, and all of a sudden... You drop that guy like a bad habit. You just went through a hole. No connection. That's exactly what happens when I sin. God drops me like a bad habit in fellowship. I got to get reconnected again. How? By acknowledging my sin. By confessing my sin. Asking forgiveness for my sin. You see, there are people always that are trying to think they're so intellectually and so smart using human logic. There used to be a guy on the radio called... Bob George, anybody with two first names uh, for first and last name, something's wrong. Um, and he says, well, you know, you don't have to, as Christians, you don't have to ask forgiveness of your sins anymore. Because uh, when Jesus died, they were all in the, in, in, the, in the future, and he paid for them all. So you don't have to confess sins. Wow, sounds so good, doesn't it? I'm amazed how fast heresy catches on. All people have to do is hear that false truth one time, and they... Propagate it. But if you teach them the truth, you have to teach it a hundred, a thousand times before people get it. You know, your kids are the same because you were the same. You just say one bad thing, your kid will get it. But to instruct them to be obedient, to be disciplined, it takes all their life. Wow. We come before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16 says. So we were born again through grace. We developed through grace, right? We continue to go. 
Grace is described as all-sufficient in Romans 5, 15 through 20. All ab- I'm sorry, all-abundant. All-sufficient in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Glorious in Ephesians 1, 6. Manifold in 1 Peter 4, 10. Rich in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Undeserved in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. The Bible has much to say about grace. Grace is warned against not to abuse it, Jude 4, not to frustrate it, Galatians 2.21, and not to turn from it in Galatians 5.3-4. Nobody ever teaches on that. They just love to preach grace without any judgment, any qualification. That's not the grace of God. That's not the grace of God. You become permissive. You become lawless. Christians are not perfect, as I said, and will miss the mark throughout life. But it should not be an abuse of grace as if it's a license for sin. Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say? Then, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or perish the thought, God forbid. How should we, who died to sin, live, live any longer in it? It's a rhetorical question. We aren't, we aren't to live there. We're not to continue to sin as a manner of practice, a lifestyle. Christians are provided with the uh, sufficient grace of God to deal with Every situation, if they will avail themselves of it. Um, listen to how extreme grace is sufficient. You remember that Paul had a thorn in the flesh, a, a, ta- a, a tent stake literally in the Greek. And he sought the Lord three times for it. And because of the f- revelation that God had given to him, a messenger of Satan was given to buffet him, lest he be exalted above measure. And as Paul sought the Lord three times... In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, whatever God is doing in my life, He is sufficient for that. Whatever He allows to come into my life, Whatever he would direct and guide my life for, his grace is sufficient for it. Christians, though they are under grace, cannot escape the consequences, though, of their sin on earth at times. Even though it has been confessed to God in heaven, even as David reaped from uh, his sins from his household. If you remember in Second Samuel from chapter 11 to 15, David sinned with Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. He went a whole year just about, it's believed, until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And Nathan said, David, you are the man, as he gave that parable. And he was just outraged that this man would take this little lamb from this man that that's all he had while he had all kinds of flocks and 
killed it and served it to his guests. And as David was outraged, saying, this man shall pay back, he'll surely die. Nathan said, you are the man, David. And he confronted him with his sin, with Bathsheba, against Uriah, sending him to his death, with his own death warrant in his hands. And David acknowledged in Psalm 51, against you and only you have I sinned. Sin is always first against God. Secondly, with somebody or against somebody. But first against God. So, as we've been dealing that we come to Christ, we ask forgiveness of all that we've committed in the past. He forgives us. And as we continue in grace, when we fall short, we ask for confession and ask Him to forgive us so we stay in fellowship. Now, even though we ask God to forgive us, and He will, at times we commit things that they will not be forgiven by others or we may reap on earth. Though they are forgiven in heaven, there are consequences that come back to us on earth. Are we clear on this? This is not condemnation. It's just reality. As you know, David's um, son raped Tamar, his daughter. And then that son was killed by Absalom. And on and on. And then Absalom laid with all the concubines of David as he overthrew him from his throne in the open air before all. As David had defiled Uriah's wife. So even though I'm asked forgiveness for certain sins that I may do, and God forgives me, the consequences on earth do catch up with me. Okay? And often Christians say, well, you know, I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. God holds nothing against you. But on earth, you have sown to the wind. You will reap the whirlwind and I. No if or but about it. All right? So, Calvary Chapel believes that the believer has access to the throne of grace for self-judgment of our sins. Ongoing. And we make use of that, and we should, to stay in fellowship with God, to be used of God. Now, thirdly, the believer is disciplined through grace for restoration from sin. The manner is given to us in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, there Jesus lays out one of the most important passages for the church, that we might keep the house clean, that we might keep our accounts short, that things might work the way God would want them to work. But he's dealing with Matthew 18, okay? And um, in Matthew 18, he, he's talking about the um, restoration of um, the sinning brother, um, Someone who has something against you. Um, and again, that's for the case of the cleansing of the church to keep it going. And I think that this is um, ignored so often in the church. It's almost like if they've um, torn out Matthew 18, a lot of churches. 
And so there's no confrontation again with this carryover value of, um, of, of being non-judgmental, of the politically correct. Because after the year 2000, we moved into an amoral society. All of a sudden, there's, 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 uh, we're all love one another, we're all one, and we shouldn't make judgments. And so even when you speak to people, <clears throat> the first thing they say, well, now I'm not judging, but why do you even have to qualify what you're going to say with that? That shows you how much the culture has affected the church. It's terrible. So Matthew 18 says, If a brother sins against you, tell him his fault, that it might be settled. Notice that it's the innocent party that has the obligation to go to the sinning, to the brother. Okay? If someone has something against you, you go to them. People you say, well, no, I didn't do nothing. Let him come to me. No, the Bible says you go to them. If he does not hear you, then take one or two other brothers with you to confront them that it might be settled there. Verse 16 of Matthew 18. If he refuses to still hear you, then he's to be confronted by the church. So you go by one, you go by two, then the elders of the church the elders, for the sake of potential restoration. But if he does not hear you, he is to be treated like a heathen or a tax collector, verse 17 says. So if a person, you confront a person and they forgive you, then it's done. Only you and them know about it. So if it ever gets out, you know there's only two people that know it's easy to find out who has the big mouth, right? If they don't hear you by one and you go then by two or by three, then the number of people goes to two, three, or four, then it's still limited to that amount. And if someone opens their mouth, there's three to four people that, that have to be checked out, not a whole bunch of people, right? So Matthew 18 kind of just clean, cleanses the, uh, the house from having to be a mess and to make it difficult to find out Who's the one that's not being faithful and genuine? It's simple. Now, the attitude is important and given in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he says, The confrontation is for the purpose of restoration, not mere castigations. Listen, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, okay, sin is a missing of the mark. Trespass is a willful disobedience. You're walking down the road. You accidentally walk into somebody's property. Guys, hey, what are you doing? What? You're on my property. Oh, I'm sorry. There was no, I didn't know. You're walking down the street. There's a fence there, 12 feet high. A big sign says, no trespassing. You climb that gate or that wall. You see the difference? The guy says, hey, what are you doing? He says, well, I don't know. I, I didn't know this was your property. What do you mean? It says there's no trespassing, right? So there's a difference between sin and trespass. Very clear in Scripture. So, brother, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So, <clears throat> we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that we're not perfect. But if we get out of line... 
even as parents, our children get out of line. Sometimes they miss the mark. They just, because they're kids, whatever, we still confront them. But sometimes they get pretty nasty, right? And they willfully do it, right? There's a big difference. And you still have to deal with your child, right? And so the confrontation is to be in humility. There in Galatians 6, 1, still it says, In the spirit of meekness or gentleness, either one, gentleness or meekness. The confrontation is to be viewed as a potential future in the one confronting. So, I'm confronting you in hope of restoration. I'm confronting you in hope that you acknowledge your sin, not excuse it or try to justify it. Just like a parent confronts a child, they're doing it to hopefully they get confession, acknowledgement, right? If a parent is dealing with their child in love and confronts them, and then they even lie on top of that, it infuriates them. It's adding insult to injury, right? So, we're doing it because of the potential failure, but we're doing it for restoration, and we're doing it through confrontation, okay? That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the confrontation is to undergird and to make it easier on the sinning brother or sister. It says in verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, as we see somebody get out of line and they're sinning or they go backsliding or whatever it is, then we have a responsibility to go and confront them, asking them to repent to get right with God. Hopefully they acknowledge their sin. It is for restoration, not for mere castigation. If I'm looking around for people who are failing simply to just let give them a piece of my mind that I can't afford to lose, then something's wrong with me. The warning is against man's pride. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, verse 3 says of Galatians 2. So I go knowing that I can fail in the very same area. I go recognizing before I even confront this brother or sister that if it weren't for the grace of God and yielding to that grace and walking in the Spirit, there go I. Are we in agreement on that? Okay? Very clear. So therefore, <clears throat> I go in a humble way. There's a difference confronting somebody when you go up and say, Hey, did you do this? Or you say, Hey, bro, I'd like to talk to you, man. You know, I, I heard a couple of things. I don't know they're true. You're the only one that clears this up. And I love you, so I'm just going to ask you straight. The Bible tells me to go straight to the person, not to somebody else. So I want to ask you, you tell me one way or the other. There's a different way to confront, right? The first one puts the person on the defensive, right? The second one, you're looking for repentance and for truth. The extent of discipline should not exceed the scriptural authority when discipline 
must be taking place. We're not to make judgments that are spurious or censorious as the rule. Matthew 7, 1 and 2, as you know, everybody knows that verse. Even the non-believer says, judge not as you be judged. With measure you give, it will be come back to you again. But the context is in a very judgmental, self-righteous, censorious way that you find fault in everything. That's the context. The context is the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees, the way they were judging. Okay? So, we're not to make judgments that are spurious, censorious on a regular basis. We've already touched on Galatians and humility. Now, this does not mean that we do not judge the deeds, the actions, or the words of the people. We have a plumb line, the Word of God. We have a standard, Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, and I call myself a Christian, I am saying to you, I am accountable to you for the standard of living life as Christ in the Bible. Today, that's foreign. Christians will get in your face if you ask and demand that in the emergent church, the seeker-friendly. So again, Christianity is being redefined. Paul certainly judged people. Paul's case with the sinning young man at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5.5. He was sleeping with his stepmother, the wife of his father. Wow. And the church was just celebrating and not doing anything about it. And Paul got all over them. He turned to the young man and he dealt with him severely. In fact, he said that such a sin was not even mentioned among the Gentiles. And he rebuked them. And um, he turned that man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. There's only a couple of times where it says that you turn over a person to Satan. Who do you give over to Satan? Christians who refuse to repent of sin. You don't turn over non-believers. Non-believers already belong to Satan. You turn over Christians who refuse to repent of their sin in hope of restoration. And if God has to chasten them, God will do it according to his grace. Even if it takes for God to take their life, we're hoping they repent before God does so. That's what the scripture teaches. Very clear. The goal is restoration, not mere castigation again. And Paul rebuked the Corinthians when they were not restoring him once he repented again. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11, we find that. So in 1 Corinthians, he hears about this young man. <clears throat> Paul is shocked that the church hasn't dealt with him, hasn't, haven't disciplined him. They're just fellowshipping with him, let him come to church, and they haven't turned him over to Satan. And then... The young man does repent. And now the Corinthian church doesn't want to let him back in. So here first they're being very lax and confronting and disciplining. And then they're hard-nosed on the other end when there is true repentance. Such should not be the case. 
Now, for repentance to take place, there must be acknowledgement of your sin, a confession of your sin, an abandonment of your sin. And then we take you at your word. And then we let time run. And the only way I can verify true, genuine repentance is for time to run. Have you truly repented or were you just sorry you got busted? Remorse. Time will tell. But I take you at your word and I give you all the benefit of grace that you have repented. I'm not looking for failure. I'm looking for transformation. Paul gives the standard for bishops and elders. You see, there's standards. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. The standards are there. If those standards are not met, then they should not be elders, overseers, bishops. That's what it means, overseers. So those qualifications are there, and we're not to receive an accusation against an elder before two or three witnesses. Especially today, everybody can flip their lip and say what they want. How many people's lives are destroyed over the Internet? Everybody has their own little uh, dream world page, right? Um, You know, Facebook and all of this, and everybody's living the dream. Everybody has followers, Right? They're all stars. And they get to say what they want. No one holds them accountable. God forbid. And so, there's a standard for the Christian. There's a higher standard for those who are leaders and representatives in the church. And they're laid out very clear in Titus and in Timothy. Much of these standards are being ignored today by their very own words and by their own admission of what they do from the pulpit, cuss and drink and everything else. And it's not even an embarrassment or even any hesitation to say and to do that. Which once again gives credence that they have redefined the Christian Christianity in the church. And so again, you must drop the plumb line, the word of God, to find out if what people say about themselves regarding Christianity is so or it is not. Paul judged two individuals who were teaching heresy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It says, and their message will spread like a cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection had already passed. And they overthrew the faith of some. He names them by name. Some people say, well, they were never born again. Well, are you going to blame Paul of using people in ministry for years as non-believers? You can't have it both ways. Either they're believers or they're non-believers. But you can't have it both ways. Paul spoke about one making shipwreck of the faith. In 1 Timothy 1.19, having faith and good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Who do you turn over to Satan? Non-believers or believers? Believers. Non-believers do belong to Satan. 
Once again, context is very important. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you're, you're, your brain is smoking right now because it's contrary to your theology. But you know what? If your theology doesn't go along with Scripture, change your theology. The Bible says as long as you're alive, you can turn away from God. You're the one that makes that choice. He names them by name. These are believers because they became dangerous to the church. Non-believers aren't dangerous. We know who non-believers are. We preach to them. We're not mad at non-believers. We don't hate non-believers. We want to preach to non-believers. Paul exposed Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Get on your computer, put Demas, boom, punch the entry line button. He'll come up everywhere he appears. Demas was greatly used by Paul and with Paul in ministry. By the way, that's his last will and testament there in Second Timothy 4.10. And all forsook Paul. The only one that stood with him was Jesus Christ. That's before he was executed. Amazing. Paul commanded that those who did not work should not eat in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He made a judgment. Every one of these verses that I've given these texts, Paul is making a judgment because what was going on by believers was not lining up with Scripture. And he called for a correction of that, which means confrontation. Looking for an acknowledgement, uh, an abandonment through repentance to be in line in fellowship with God and the church. Very, very, very clear. Grace is the believer's position. All are under it, Romans 6.14. All receive it, John 1.16. All stand in it, Romans 5.2. All abound in it, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. All are, in, are to be strong in it, 2 Timothy 2, 1. All are to grow in it, 2 Peter 3, 10. All are to speak with it, Ephesians 4, 29. And all are to inherit it in 1 Peter 3, 7. Grace is all over the New Testament. Make sure you have um, Matthew 18 as your foundation. Having all the facts, as much is within your power before you confront someone. Don't just go on partial information. Don't just grab something by someone hearsay. Make sure you are absolutely sure and you have your facts as you go to confront somebody. Make sure your attitude is for restoration and not simply castigation to inflict pain or to just revenge to get even. Our attitude is important. Make sure that you are not afraid of making sound judgments over a person's life when it is clear and contrary to the scriptures and the call of grace. And that people 
who are failing just call it a life of grace? No. Today, many people are afraid to make judgment because of the culture infiltrating the church. You have to be careful. You are called to make certain judgments. When you leave here, you're going to make certain judgments. Before you cross the street, you're going to have to look both ways, make sure no car is coming so you don't get run over. When you get to the first light, you're going to have to make a decision whether you go on the red or the green. It will determine whether you get home or not. Judgments you have to make every day. Make sure you have all the facts. Make sure you're doing the right attitude. Make sure that people are not using grace to abuse it and simply say, well, you know, I'm under grace to escape their responsibility. Make sure you understand that restoration with God is never the problem. Immediately, instantly, the minute a person repents, their sin will be forgiven and their fellowship is restored with God. You need to understand that. You may not like it, but their fellowship is restored with God. But also make sure that, and equally, that you understand that though there may be genuine repentance, the offense may be of such nature and extent at times by those in position of leadership that restoration to the same position or office may be impossible because to those that much is given, much more is required. And that goes unto the qualifications of elders and bishops in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Okay? So, people would call you a legalist. No, you're being biblical. It's real simple. And also realize that <clears throat> though you may be forgiven in fellowship, as we said earlier, with the Lord Jesus Christ right away, there are some people that, even though God has forgiven you, are not going to forgive you, even as Christians. Okay? It's the way it is. And sometimes the nature of the sin that a person has committed has done such destruction that to be in fellowship with that person is impossible. So you have to be careful. Sometimes there's children involved. Sometimes there's other men's wives or husbands involved. And so your sin before God is not the problem. It's your sin before man that you have to deal with for the rest of your life. And too many Christians want to use slape agape and call it grace. No. That term, cheap grace, was coined by Dietrich von Hoffer. I don't agree with his theology. He was a neo-Orthodox from the German school. But I like the term, cheap grace. So, but don't, don't say that I agree with him. I don't agree with him, so I preface that, okay? But many people live under cheap grace. And such should not be the case. We want to be as gracious as the scriptures allow we don't want to be permissive. We don't want to give any inclination of thought or understanding 
that we don't deal with sin, according to the scriptures. And we equally want people to understand and know that what we're looking for is forgiveness because of repentance and restoration. That is what the Church of Jesus Christ is all about. And so Calvary Chapel believes that the believer is disciplined through grace for restoration from sin. This is um, the distinctive of grace upon grace. The pastor Chuck believed that we are to be known by, but never, ever permissiveness. So the believer is saved by grace as God judges his or her sins. The believer has access to the throne of grace for self-judgment of his or her sins. And the believer is disciplined through grace for the restoration from sin. That's what the Bible teaches about grace and sin. And so, may God give us wisdom as we live it out from day to day. As we serve in the church. As we interact with the world. That they would understand what the Bible teaches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would just uh, deal with our hearts and cause us to be open to the work of your spirit. And the Lord, once again, the, um, your word, the plumb line, uh, so important. Not what we believe or what we think or what we feel, but what your word of God says, Lord. And so, Father, we do thank you. We love you. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you're there, then we ask you to repent of your sins. Jesus died for you, rose from the dead. He is able to forgive you and to make a new creation from you. That's how it all begins. As you begin your life of walking under grace. If this is your desire, then this is your prayer of repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can repeat it. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. Father, I thank you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.